Podcast. I'm Allison Little, a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and award-winning entrepreneur who has built businesses and brands for the past decade. I'm passionate about helping high achievers launch to the next level. Welcome to Launch Podcast with Allison Little. Today's episode is called Marketing Mess to Brand Success with Scott Miller, capping a 25-year career where he served as Chief Marketing Officer and Executive Vice President of Business Development. Scott Miller currently serves as Franklin Covey's Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership, leading the strategy and development of the firm's Speakers Bureau, as well as the publication of podcasts, webcasts, and best-selling books. I am super thrilled to have Scott joining us again. He was also on our launch podcast a few months ago and just did a phenomenal job. And now with his new book out, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, I knew we had to have him again. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the launch podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back and turning your spotlight on me. I appreciate the platform. Absolutely. You know, I know you've already been on the podcast, but um, for our new listeners, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Well, sure. So I'm 52. I live in Salt Lake City with my wife and our three young sons, all under the age of 10, which is not recommended. (laughs) Uh, I am a 25-year associate of the Franklin Covey Company. Of course, the famous leadership development firm was their chief marketing officer for nearly a decade, stepped away from that role, and I'm an advisor now to the firm, but I'm launching my own books and brand. I, I've uh, published four books, each of which have become bestsellers thanks to readers that find my insights and humor valuable. Not everybody does. <laughs> Ten books in the Mess to Success series. A year and a half ago, I launched the blue book behind me, Management Mess to Leadership Success. That did well enough to the publisher decided to uh, sign me to a 10-book, 10 10-year 10 deal for them. So I've just launched Marketing Mess in green to brand success. And I've got seven more coming out or eight more, including job mess, communication mess, and others. So I'm here today to talk about our messes. Uh, and I think that's um, the thing that I really appreciate from your writing style is that you aren't one of those people that's writing about, here's what you need to you know, become. You're actually sharing real authentic messes that you've made in your life and learning from them and helping the reader do the same. So that's been really amazing. Well, I appreciate it. I am. Uh, I lead the book division for Franklin Covey. Our books have sold 50 million copies, not my books, company's books. Yes. And I thought there was a need for a different series of books that helped people relate to even the most successful, influential people have a string of messes, have a string, string of uh, mistakes and issues. And that sometimes the best way to teach is for your messes. When you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So I wanted to write books that acknowledge my own messes, you know, do this, don't do that. Don't say this, instead say that. And while you're looking at me in the pothole, flailing around, walk around the pothole and go to cheat. <laughs> so. Right? Absolutely. I think that's that's a really authentic way and, and people do learn from that. So your new book is Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And I I wish I would have had this when I was 23 and I started my first marketing firm, Uh, but it is just filled with so much knowledge. So tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this book. Well, it's interesting, you know, as I become more mature (laughs) and wiser and older, I'm finding myself open to be influenced by other people and not just people you might expect by CEO friends or boards, but people who are younger than I, right? A lot younger. And this actually book was inspired by my, at the time, 23-year-old assistant who said, Scott, you want to write a whole series of mess of success books. 
I'm like, mm-hmm. that's a great idea. I never thought about that before. It was actually his idea. And so, you know, I spent eight years as the chief marketing officer of a global public brand. And I had seen so many companies where sales and marketing are always fighting with each other, pointing the finger at each other, blaming each other. It's the CEO's biggest nightmare. Mm-hmm. Next to a reputational breach, sales and marketing fighting is their biggest nightmare. So I wanted to be a model for better collaboration amongst sales and marketing and recognizing that a lot of marketers choose marketing careers because they're afraid of owning a sales number or being accountable for more than clicks and likes, but you know, being right in the boat with sales, rowing with them. So I wrote a book called Marketing Mess to Brand Success that highlights 30 challenges anyone's going to face in their marketing career. Or even if you're not in a marketing career, you're going to face these with your own brand as well. So I thought there was a lot of lessons to be taught through some of my successes and my own messes. And the book is funny. It's fast. It's breezy. This is not war and peace. This is not good to great. I write easy, relatable books with, you know, three-page chapters in the hopes that it meets people where they are. Yes. And uh, I'm glad that it met you where you are. Absolutely. I have, um, I laugh. Like, it's like you, you get us laughing and then you teach a principle. And, and I, and I love that format because I feel like it's very, very uh, accessible. So one of my favorite challenges is um, it's the customer stupid. So tell us about why this is important, especially when we're thinking about marketing to our clients and customers. So the book has 30 challenges. This is the first challenge called it's the customer stupid. And I base it on the 1992 U.S. presidential campaign, where then Governor Bill Clinton and Senator Al Gore were running for president, vice president against the incumbent president, George H.W. Bush and vice president, Dan Quayle. I've dated myself, right? I worked on that campaign. Well, if you know, the two famous political consultants were James Carville and Paul Begala. They've gone on to huge fame as Democratic operatives. And they had a sign on their Little Rock office that said, it's the economy, stupid. Everybody back in the early 90s knew this phrase. That was the only way that Governor Clinton was going to beat President Bush. He'd just come off a 93% approval rating from, quote, winning the first Gulf War, expelling you know, Iraq from the invasion of Kuwait. It's the economy, stupid. And so I, I, I took this principle to say, it's the customer, stupid, because well-intended hardworking marketers, chief financial officers, COOs, forget that it's the customer. We're so focused on our P&L, our EBITDA, our cost of goods, our mission, our products, our quarterly revenue that we lose track, that we're sort of naturally gravitationally focused on our mission, not our client's mission. I don't mean to scold anybody, but marketing needs to be the voice of the customer. You need to be the person that says, whoa, 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 wait, how do we know that? How do we know the client calls it that? How do we know what circumstance they're in? How do we know this is what they want? Now, I know Steve Jobs would say, clients don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want. Well, if you're not, unless you're Steve Jobs, which Mm -hmm. I'm not, you got to be listening to the client. You have to resist the gravitational pull of living in your hairball. I once heard, Allison, that the best salespeople aren't those that have committed their second quarter goal to memory. They've committed their client's second quarter revenue goal to memory. They're obsessed with what their clients need and it's hard. And so I wrote the first chapters to remind all of us that you may have to unnaturally resist the tractor beam where everybody's internally focused. Your clients don't care what your mission is. Mm -hmm. Clients don't care what year you were founded in or how much money you spent on R&D. They care. Do you know their circumstance? 
and can you solve their problem for them? Oh, and you know, I think what you said is so true. And my husband and I purchased a financial planning firm about eight and a half years ago. And that was our, our sole focus when we were rebuilding is what does a client need from us? How do we rebuild trust? We need to have conversations with them. We need to build relationships with them. And I think, you know, as we're building businesses and organizations, we constantly have to be having the conversations and relating with people and caring, right? And as soon as you stop caring, your business is going to stop growing. Your organization organization is not going to be as functional. And I think uh, I think that's why I really, really enjoy that challenge and kind of how you put it together. This isn't an epiphany, right? We're not scolding right. anybody. It's just, it is the natural focus of business to be focused on your problems. And marketing just needs to be the voice of the marketplace, what's happening mm-hmm. out there and how do we make sure that our clients know and feel that we are focused on them as well. Absolutely. So one of the things that I really relate with you on is that you are a very visionary person. And one of the stories you share is that you will have meetings with your team. And because you have such big ideas, sometimes you will remove yourself from the details of how to go to that next level with that idea, the how to, like who should do what and all of the plans. So tell us a little bit about that process and really how you came upon understanding that sometimes when we're doing things, it's okay to just operate it our strength zone and then help other people operate in their strength zone too and and equip them with that. Well, this came to me 20 years too late, right? Or 20 years later than it should. When it really stems from the premise of one of my favorite leadership books called Multipliers written by Liz Wiseman. I think it's the best leadership book ever written, right? She talks about how as a leader, as a founder, as as an entrepreneur, your job is not to be the smartest person in the room. No one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. Your job is to be the genius maker of others, not the genius, but the genius maker of others. That requires you to be self-aware, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, not try to be expert at everything. So, you know, I'll be honest, in my mid-40s is when I really kind of came across this self-awareness that I have strengths and I have weaknesses. And the more vulnerable I am, the more I'm willing to own my mess and talk about it abundantly the better people can rally around me. One of my strengths is I'm not a natural linear thinker. Your point, I'm, a, I'm an extraordinarily creative person. I have nearly indefatigable energy. Some of my weaknesses are I don't like systems. I feel constructed, right, with documentation. And so I have to surround myself with people that have that strength and be comfortable with their genius, with their expertise. And oftentimes I'll recuse myself from a meeting. I'll share a big idea. I'll, you know, let it drain on the table and I'll say, now, this is an idea. I think there is some value here. We have so many strengths here around implementation and growth and marketing and sales. Will you all chew on this? I'm going to come back in an hour and kind of see where you've taken it, recognizing that, you know, you may have a twist on this idea. I don't have to have all my ideas be the best idea. But I quote myself in the book, or quote one of my colleagues, there was a time when I was the chief marketing officer, where the funny adage in the division of about 38 people was best idea wins as long as it's Scott's. Because I thought as the CMO, my job was to have all the big ideas. My job was to, you know, have the buck stop with me. So I miss, I misconstrue what it means to be accountable for results, but I have to own and approve every process and every idea. I'll tell you, when I walked away from the CMO role, I recused myself from the job after about eight years, took another role in the company at the same level. About a year later, when I came back to the marketing division, you know, 30 people on a whole floor in the building, I had a bit of an ego enema because what I realized is they hadn't just maintained the quality that I had been willing to them. 
their stuff was better. Their postcards, their post, their social posts, their websites, their, their brochures were like better. That was humbling. But I realized that maybe I was holding some people back through my, quote, genius. The good news is it's hopefully reflecting in my parenting. My boys are still very young, so hopefully I won't be as controlling and dominating. <laughs> right? I think we all, you know, we all uh, have different ways of, of going through and learning lessons in order to go to that next level. And so you have worked with some of the most influential leaders and influencers on the planet. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about, you know, if you're going to sit down with one of them and help them grow their marketing, what would you say? What would you start with? What would you ask? Well, I had a name in mind, but I switched over because I think he's a genius. Seth Godin came to mind. A good oh, friend of mine. right. Oh, I'm not I sure I can teach Seth a whole lot. Yes. Um, oh, he calls me for ideas occasionally, which I find fluttering. You know, here, here's the biggest idea I would share. And I forget which challenge it is in the book, but it's the challenge where more is not better. Better is better. We all fall into this trap, right, of spreading ourselves too thin. I tell you, it's, it's one of, I, I host what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It goes to about 8 million every week, 150 episodes. And to your point, we interview titans of industry every week. And I, there's two commonalities that all these major names have in common. One, they have a indefatigable work ethic. They work their hearts out. Whether it's people who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul or it's Dan Pink or Liz Wiseman or Susan Cain or Dave Hollis or Rachel Hollis or General McChrystal or Emmanuel Acho, right? Uncomfortable conversations with a black man. I interviewed him last week. I mean, he literally walked off of Ellen's set onto our virtual set and then walked on a good housekeeping and had, you know, four interviews on either side. Everybody I've met has this undeniable work ethic. And what they also have is this unnatural ability to narrow their focus and not spread their time across 10 books and a podcast and a radio program and maybe Ryan Seacrest. But beyond that, these people that become unnaturally successful is they have a discipline to say no. They have the focus, the stamina to say no to great ideas at the expense of like genius ideas versus someone like me who gets intoxicated and I'm writing four books and a podcast and two columns and this and that and Therefore, my stuff, I think, is good, but it could be better. So that's the big lesson I would teach some people that perhaps are growing their brand, even some of the more famous people, is what is your one thing? I ask myself all the time. I was interviewing Brendan Bouchard, right? I mean, the famous YouTuber and online media personality and author. I mean, he wrote a book called High Performance Habits, and he calls it a PQO, PQO, Prolific Quality Output. So instead of Brendan writing 10 books, he writes one every three or four years and he spends three years writing and researching and invests a million dollars into the research and his book becomes a blockbuster, which in turn makes him a $100,000 a day speaker and makes him the largest online provider of courses in the world by subscription. So this one I, this one I can teach myself on. More is not better. Better is better. What is your PQO, prolific quality, output. I would mm. teach that to some people, including myself. Oh, gosh, that's amazing. Long and answer. That No, that's fantastic. And, you know, one of the things that I personally struggle with is doing all the things, right? Like, just like you said, doing all the things and trying to figure out who it is that I am speaking to. So how do you, for your own personal brand, how do you figure out who am I marketing to? What Who is that specific person? Yeah, yeah. well, speaking of Seth Godin, right? So one of the challenges is 
your smallest viable market. This comes from Seth Godin's book, This Is Marketing. I actually think Seth's book, This Is Marketing, is the best marketing book ever written. Don't buy my book, buy Seth's book. Well, buy his first and then buy mine. But Seth, with permission, taught me this concept and lent it to me for my book. In fact, you know, I'm really an aggregator. If you read my stuff, you realize I've probably never had an original idea in my life. In fact, most of us haven't. I just like to have this, you know, insatiable curiosity satisfied with people and then bring their ideas to light breath by own experience. Seth teaches this idea of your smallest viable market. And again, this is very unnatural because as entrepreneurs, as leaders, as inventors, we like to boil the ocean. When we're creating our small business administration loan documents, we write, oh, everybody needs my book. Everybody is going to come to my restaurant. When you're seeking your VC funding or your private equity funding, your business plan is there's 18 million people who need. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. It's counterintuitive. Most of us think of our largest viable market when unnaturally I've come to evangelize that instead to quote Seth, it's your smallest viable market. Who is the first person that must read your book? What is their name? What is their circumstance? What is their pain? Who is the second person who needs to come to your restaurant? Who is the third person? And when you build a business that has the least necessary number of customers to become successful, everything changes for you. Again, this requires a counterintuitive mindset. It requires a counterintuitive skill set. It requires a unnatural focus to try to boil the ocean. It requires you to what we call at Franklin Covey spearfish as opposed to netfish, casting a huge net out to catch grouper. Well, you catch a couple grouper, but you also catch a jet ski and a tire and a fishing pole and some electric eels, right? Versus Mm -hmm. a spearfish getting very deliberate. So your smallest viable market requires a level of patience and focus and confidence and persistence that a lot of people don't have. What happens, though, is those that go after your largest viable market, now you've got too many customers and you can't serve them well and you neglect them and you're on to the next customer and you're in churn and burn and you're wondering why people are leaving you. My wife and I bought a home recently here in Salt Lake, our fifth home in seven years that she's not happy about. (laughs) An interior designer. And the interior designer was talking about how he'd had a landscape architect that was a contractor for him for like 20 years and he fired him. And the landscape architect, this multi-million-dollar business, came in and said, why did you fire me? And he says, I haven't seen you in four years. I've given you like dozens of customers. I haven't even seen you in four years. I was like your biggest customer. You took me for granted. Good advice for all of us, right? Is how can you grow your business with the least number of customers possible to be successful? Not the most number of Mm, that's a beautiful thing. And I think it is hard. It's hard because as you're starting, you might not know who that person is that you're talking to, but having the conversations and being mindful of the people that are connecting with the stuff that you're doing. Can I riff on that for a moment? Yes. I love that you built that bridge because one of these people you've mentioned that I've had a privilege to interview and work with is the, is the professor from Harvard, Clayton Christensen. He passed a year ago, arguably one of the most famous innovation minds in the world, wrote Innovator's Dilemma, Innovator's Solution, and wrote the seminal book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And Clayton didn't invent this, but he popularized the idea of circumstance-based marketing. Again, I write in the book all about understanding your customer's journey and what is their circumstance. The best marketers, the best entrepreneurs are obsessed with understanding what is the circumstance my customer is in. It's a very famous professor in author, a man named Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A. He invented this idea of the job to be done, right? We've heard this 
people don't buy a nine inch drill, they buy a nine inch hole. No one wants a drill, you want a hole. And so as you think about your products and your services, you should be obsessed with understanding what is the circumstance my client is in. Can I go one minute further? Oh, absolutely. I write a, I write a, a, a chapter of the book about the Roomba, like, you know, the vacuum cleaner that I can't afford, that originally was named I Suck. That was the name of it, I Suck. And they eventually had the wisdom to rename it the Roomba. Well, what happened was when Roomba launched, they had this unbelievably high number of Roombas being returned to them because the engines were burning out. Like nothing in correlation to all their QA testing. They're like scratching their heads. Why are these customers returning these Roombas? Well, what they learned was that a shocking number of Roomba clients were actually heart patients. People that had just recovered from heart surgery or double bypass surgery and they were given the instruction that they could not run a vacuum. It was too much, you know, pressure on their heart. They also couldn't leave their homes for a variety of reasons and links. So they were having people come to their homes. So they wanted their homes cleaned and vacuumed. So they also wanted companionship. Like something like north of 90% of people had named their Roomba. And so they were running the Roombas at three times the rate that was prescribed. They were running them not once a day, but like three times a day because they wanted companionship. They couldn't vacuum and they wanted their homes clean. Now, I'm not sure what the lesson to learn you know, at the end of this is other than had Roomba known that a disproportionate number of their clients were going to run them three times a day, they might have better educated their audience. They might have given them better instructions or built bigger engines. I don't know, but they could have marketed it certainly more successfully as well and had 10 times the customers or right. the right number mm-hmm. of customers. I love that story. No diss to Roomba or iRobot or what was going to be I suck, but there's so much insight to be thinking about what is the circumstance your ideal customer is in and how do you meet them there? Do you call it by the same name they call it? I write a whole chapter about speak their language because we get so obsessed with what we call it. I might call it leadership. You might call it engagement. I might call it productivity. You might call it efficiency. Mm-hmm. Move out of the language and your own ideas of why your clients are buying them. Listen carefully. What circumstance is my ideal client in? Are we calling it by the same words? Are we solving the same problem? You'll crush it when you do some of these small trim tab adjustments to your marketing. Oh, that is gold. That is absolutely amazing. And to all of our listeners, make sure you write that one down because uh, as soon as you start understanding what your client or customer needs, you're able to speak their language, you're able to connect with them, and you're able to build your business and your brand to a whole new level. I've asked you before, so what are the two things you've done in your life to launch to the next level? Oh, one definitely is friend up. I mean, I am a, I'm a rabid friender upper. Now, a lot of people hear that and they think I'm just an opportunist. No, no, no. I have lots of friends that can't do anything for me. I have lots of friends that are 20 or 30 or getting their college education or their high schooler and they can learn from me. They're friending up to me. What I mean is I friend up to people who are older, smarter, wiser, wealthier, more culture, more educated, have more bankruptcies that I can learn from. So early in life, I always associated myself with people who were smarter, wiser, more courageous, had higher ethics, because you are what the average of the books you read and the people you hang around with. I slaughtered that, but there's truth to that. That's the first thing. The second thing is I own my mess. Is You don't have to squeeze my messes out of me. Now, I'm Catholic, so that helps. So a good confession comes easy from Mr. Miller here. But I'm not embarrassed easily. Here's a good example. 
on Mother's Day at Mass last week, we're Catholic. My wife is not Catholic, but she attends church with um, me and our three sons. Last week at the end of Mass, they asked all the mothers to stand up to recognize them. Well, I thought they were dismissing us because at the end, they always say, you know, please stand for the final blessing and whatever. I stand up with like 400 mothers and me because I was just, you know, I'm 50. I've been to Mass a thousand times or 8,000 times. And my wife is like, you know, panicked. She's like flush in the face and my children are embarrassed. So I'm like standing up for 30 seconds. And then I realize, oh, it's all mother. So I sit down. My family is like having a stroke. Like, I'm like, that's not embarrassing. I, that doesn't even phase me. Own your mess, right? Teach your uh, mess. I can talk about it gently. My wife would in the face if I ever even shared that at a cocktail party. <laughs> can I just tell you, everybody knows your messes. Everybody knows your credit score. Everybody knows who's gay and straight. Everybody knows who's getting fired. Everybody knows everything. There's no secrets anymore. Just own yourself. Own your mess. Be comfortable with who you are, but then take it a step further. Teach through it. Teach through your messes, right? Don't teach through your successes. Sit everybody down and say, look, let me tell you about my biggest marketing blunder. Let me tell you about why I was fired once. Learn from this. I think those are the best leaders are those that are super comfortable with their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Not to repeat them, not to license bad behavior, but to, for the next up-and-coming generation, say, let me tell you about the time I stood up for six minutes during Mother's Day when I wasn't even paying attention. And I wasn't even checked in enough to realize I was the only man standing up. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic story and a great one to end on. Oh, my gosh, Scott, you always make me laugh. Okay, <laughs> how do people get a hold of you and find your book? Well, to my wife's horror, she says it's not hard to find me. And that's not a compliment from her. So you can visit me at scottjeffreymiller.com. You can Google Scott Miller. The odds are my mug will show up. You can visit uh, marketingbestbook.com. You can Google On Leadership with Scott Miller. Subscribe to the podcast. I'd love to have you follow me on LinkedIn or friend me on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter or any of those. I'm honored that you brought me back on today. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Scott. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to learn from you. And you're just doing so many great things in the world. So keep going. Um, To all of our listeners, if you love this episode, make sure you share it. And there are so many people that will appreciate what Scott's message is and how he's sharing his marketing messes with the world. So thanks again. I hope that you'll have me back on for job mess. Absolutely. You're always, you're, you're just, just... You just have Drew contact me. You know it. You know it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Launch Podcast. I'm Allison Little, and I'm so excited that you spent your time with me. Look for future episodes and connect with me on social media or at my website at www.allisonlittle.com. <laughs> <laughs>